0: sermon text this morning is from Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then the light in you is darkness. How great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of God. Right, right, let's pray together. Father, we hear this word this morning. We hear you speaking, we hear you uh, telling us quite clearly that the treasures of this world will not satisfy. I pray that we would take that into our hearts, that it would be not just something we hear, but something we believe deeply something we live out, something that's shown in our lives. God, I pray that you would do that for us to your glory and that your name may be demonstrated uh, by our doing it. God, I pray uh, in our, our hearing this morning that you would help us uh, in attentiveness and in, in clarity and in everything we need uh, to grow and receive this word. pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so our, our preschoolers have been dismissed. Okay, awesome. Um, so uh, obviously Matthew is not here today. Um, he is on the uh, sanguine beaches of Florida, and, uh, but I am here with you this morning, and I am so glad to be able to bring uh, God's Word here this morning from Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. So uh, some people... Uh, at times, make really bad investments, right? That happens. Sometimes it's kind of, you know, brought on themselves. And, you know, if you're, if you're taking all of your, like, excess savings and putting it on, like, a tech startup single stock option, like, I'm not saying you deserve it, but, you know, the signs are there, right? Like, so sometimes people make bad investments, but sometimes people make bad investments and they don't know it, have no idea, no, no idea at all. Right. So, for instance, take take Enron in the early 2000s. Um, I don't remember this from experience. Um, I was four. Um, I hope that doesn't make y'all feel really old. But I was four uh, when this happened. But you know, i read about it, uh, and I understand the basic contours of of how it happened. Right? That you have this huge, huge company uh, that's ballooned in in its its size and its its um, its money, and in, it all has all these employees. And then, over the course of a year, its stock price dropped from, like, almost 90 to basically nothing, right? So it just collapsed. They filed for bankruptcy. And a lot of people were were deeply affected. For instance, take this uh, this, this NPR section from an NPR article uh, from 2002, January 2002. Enron's financial implosion has cost thousands of employees their jobs and leaves the 14,000 people still employed by the bankrupt energy trader in limbo. Most of those who remain are spending their time working on resumes and looking for other work. Many of those workers were also Enron shareholders. As stock in the company dropped from more than $80 per share to mere pennies, tens of thousands of people saw their pension and investment accounts depleted or destroyed. All told, Enron employees are out more than $1 billion in pension holdings. In a cruel bit of symmetry, that's roughly the same amount that a group of 29 Enron executives reportedly amassed while selling stock in the two years preceding the collapse. Stories of individual loss are equally staggering. One 30-year employee lost $1.5 Another saw a $2 million portfolio sliced to $4,000. A married couple who both worked at Enron were fired within 30 minutes of each other and lost 600,000 in retirement savings. Many employees say they stuck with their investments because Enron CEO Kenneth Lay and other executives expressed faith in the company's future, even amid mounting signs that the company was in a nosedive. So these people were left in financial ruin Because they didn't know the situation, uh, the company that they had invested all this money was in. And and even further, the CEO was telling them, everything's good, don't worry, guys. Imagine what could have happened if they had been given a warning about what would happen, right? A warning that this thing was about to go under so they could get out while they still could. These people could have kept their money, could have kept their retirement savings, In the same way, Jesus is giving a warning about a bad investment, investment of our heart in this passage. He's giving us a warning now. He tells us to not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. And his warning about the consequences that will come from that. If we are wise, we will heed Jesus' words this morning. So uh, just to, to outline where we're going, we're going to look at this uh, passage where Jesus here gives this warning. Uh, we're going to get an overview of the passage, and then we're going to see, basically, uh, two concerns that make up this warning that Jesus is giving. First concern, that earthly, earthly treasures make foolish investments, and the second concern, that our hearts follow what we treasure. So what I want to do this morning in looking at this passage and this, this idea of, of um, not devoting our hearts to the treasures of this world rather than the treasures of heaven is to, see, is to first consider uh, what we do with our money, to second, see how our money affects our heart, and, and third, to see uh, Jesus as the source of healing for our bad heart investments as well as our way out of those investments. Like I said, I want to begin by getting just a 30,000-foot view of what Jesus is doing here in this passage in, in Matthew 6, 19 through 24. I want to see, first, the theme of what he's talking about, and second, the tone of what he's talking about, the theme and the tone of this passage this morning. So first, Jesus, the theme that Jesus is dealing with is money and the heart. Right? He's kind of dealing with both at the same time, money and the heart. As we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount so far, we've mostly just been identifying uh, different themes that Jesus talks about, like lust, anger, uh, giving, um, prayer, for instance. And what Jesus has kind of been aiming at through the Sermon on the Mount is to show uh, a better kind of righteousness— One that doesn't just ask, how can I just avoid lust or how can I just avoid anger? But he deals with our heart as well. How our heart drives those things and how our heart causes uh, lust and anger within us and how we must be attentive not just to the things we do, but our hearts as well. And that's what he's doing here in this passage too. Jesus is, at a surface level, talking about money, right? We see that the, the last word um, in this whole section in 24 kind of gives that away, where he says, you cannot serve God and money, right? So, so money is an idea that's here in this passage, and that's a, that's a major theme of what Jesus is talking about. Uh, your your version um, in verse 24, if you have King James Version or maybe some other versions, it might not say money. It might say mammon. Uh, mammon is a word that I have not used this year. Um, in fact, that right there, that was the first time I've said it all year, right? It's not a word that we normally use, but in, in Jesus' time, it would have Signified more than just plain dollars and cents right it 's the things necessary for life your uh, not just your money but your your clothes, food, etc, and so he, he is identifying money in the way we use it the ESV uh, uh, translates that as money rather than the mammon because uh, number one we don 't use the word mammon like I already said, but number two because um, we kind of see all of our life through our money, right? Like if you go to the, the store and, uh, you know, you're, you're buying groceries and they're really expensive, it's a problem because of, you know, inflation and it's taking more of your money, right? It decreases your ability to get the things you need for life. So, Jesus is talking about money. The central issue, even though money has kind of been different, right, throughout all kinds of different places and times and history, Because the world is limited in its resources, we are always going to be tempted to ask the question, how can I get as much as I want or need as possible? Because of limited resources, we're always going to be tempted to ask, how can I get as much as I want and need as possible? Jesus is warning Us against such a mindset. Such a mindset that sees the world only through terms of dollars and cents. And his concern is not so much about money, but our heart. The way that our hearts are affected by the way that we use this money. So the tone that Jesus has here, that's the theme we see is, is the heart and money. The tone Jesus is using here is really one of a warning. He's giving a command, right? He says, don't lay up treasures for yourself. But he's kind of giving us a warning about, here's what's going to happen if you do that, right? Here's the consequences that will come. So why do we need warnings at all, right? Usually, um, we, we, sometimes we take warnings really seriously, right? Like around here, um, we take weather alerts really seriously, right? Like our uh, Chief meteorologist around here is also like our chief celebrity, right? Like, we take um, warnings about weather really seriously. Um, We don't often take, you know, warnings about like hearing protection, for instance, uh, quite so seriously. But in both of those instances, we're being alerted to a danger down the road that we otherwise wouldn't know about. told that a storm is coming, we're told that if you keep going to three concerts every weekend or every month, you're going to uh, have hearing loss when when you get older, right? You may not notice it now, but it's coming, right? These are warnings. Jesus is giving a warning. We may not notice how investing our hearts in this world, being consumed by materialism, as we'll talk about in a second, investing our hearts in this world, we may not notice how it's affecting us, but Jesus needs us to know that it is. It's affecting our hearts greatly and to our detriment. So that's why Jesus gives this warning here. All right, so we've seen the overview of what Jesus is talking about. We've got the big picture. Let's move now to look at basically the two concerns that Jesus has in his warning, the two concerns that make up what he's saying. The first concern is that earthly treasures make foolish investments. Earthly treasures make foolish investments. So there's this really common pattern that you see when you're looking through uh, Psalms and Proverbs and other wisdom books in the Old Testament, where you see kind of these two ways or these two paths contrasted with each other. You've got a wise path and a foolish path, right? You've got the, the, the one path that leads to righteousness and flourishing and one path that leads to destruction. Jesus is taking a similar route here. He's contrasting two ways, the way of the world and the way of the kingdom, the two paths that we have before us. So first, he talks about the way of the world, He talks about that in verse 19, where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So he's warning against laying up treasures on earth. This is the way of the world. The way of the world is marked by materialism. The way of the world is marked by materialism. Now, materialism is just an obsession with money and, and more directly, the things that money can buy. The the way of the world is, is extremely concerned with laying up treasures on earth because the world looks around and sees only the world around it and says, I need to lay up my treasures in the things that I see, in the things that I know truth is that we all at times struggle with materialism, right? So, so one example might be a child that's, uh, you know, obsessed with, with presents, you know, waiting for Christmas, like, right? this was me, 100%, you know, like, you, you, you think, uh, I want this, and I want that, and as like the anticipation builds and builds, you have not only said, I want this and that, you kind of like promise yourself in your heart, and I'm going to get this and that. And then, right, it explodes in some moment where the kid gets, you know, socks or, or something where they were wanting, you know, this video game or something like that, and they, they express extreme disappointment, right? Um, we, many of us have been there, um, and many, many of us as parents have experienced it, right? Um, another example of materialism might be um, a, little more, uh, a little more serious, a little more sad, it might be uh, husband father who just really becomes obsessed with promotion at work. They've done the math on, you know, how their pay scale will be bumped up. They, they know exactly what they're going to do with that money. Um, they think about it all the time. They, they work um, extra hours doing tasks that nobody asks for and, and nobody needs just to prove that they're willing to go the extra mile. Um, they, they, they see their family very... Infrequently, and um, put, essentially put everything in their life into making this happen. That happens, and it's an example of the way that materialism can affect us. We're all tempted and drawn towards materialism. We, we live in a world that is desperate for us to join uh, it and its materialism. World around us, um, we are advertised to. Constantly, right it felt like it the, the, the advertising may have dipped off a little bit when we all stopped watching as much TV got on streaming services, then everyone caught up with that um, and you know we see ads constantly on, on social media, that sort of thing they're always before us the The marketing now it 's both more frequent and more complex, right like they're not just hitting you with more ads, but now you're seeing uh, constant ads for Things that you only thought in your mind, I would like that, right? (laughs) Like, they've gone beyond just listening to you now. They're actually reading your minds. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, that's the the level we're at now. Um, We're increasingly able to purchase things on credit, right? Buying things that we we can't actually buy, even for, for frivolous things. And then just social media in general makes keeping up with the Joneses easier, right? Or at least makes us more prone to do it basically puts us in an arms race with friends and family. The way of the world is common, and its appeal is strong. Right, The draw towards materialism is strong. What are the consequences of such a way? What are the consequences of following the way of the world in this, in this materialism? Jesus says that the consequences are devastating. He describes the treasures of this world as fundamentally insecure. He says that they are subject to destruction and theft, right? He says, don't put your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy um, and where thieves break in and steal. And basically, he's saying that putting your treasure in this world may feel secure at the moment, but ultimately, um, will not, cannot last, right? For example, we might take the, the Great Depression, right, where, where the stock market collapsed and where people were, were, were left without their, their savings, their bank investments as banks closed. We might think about natural disasters, right? Like we, we know this has hit home for us, right? People probably that we know and love have lost uh, homes or property to, to tornado damage over the past 10 years or so. We, we also can just see um, easily how two or three personal financial strains might stack up and, and leave us in a, a really financially insecure place. The truth is that life's assets are insecure, whether we feel like they are or not. And the conclusion, I think, to that is that if the things of life are fundamentally insecure, they make a foolish investment. If the things of life are insecure, they make a foolish investment. Oftentimes investments, they are either, you know, high-risk, high-yield, or low-risk, low-yield, right? Like, you take a lot of risk, but you might get a lot of money out of it. Take a low risk, but you're not gonna get much out of it. Truth is, investing in this world is like high-risk, no-yield, right? It's like investing in post-Netflix Blockbuster, right? Like, it's like investing in Blockbuster today, right? Like, it's, it's There's no good that can come out of investing our heart in this world. But there is another way, which is the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom, Jesus describes in 620, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So, He's contrasting uh, how how the things of the world are are prone to destruction and how instead investing, putting our our treasure in heaven is better. So the way of the kingdom is not about not having, right? You hear all that, it's like, oh, don't invest your your treasures in the, the things of this world. If Jesus had stopped at verse 19, we might be forgiven for thinking that Jesus is promoting, you know, just. Uh, absolute, uh, you know, like misery, right? Like like our, our, our lives are just to be miserable, but in, instead he says, lay up treasure, right? There, there is treasure to be had. And so rather than saying have not, it's more something like delayed gratification, right? So delayed gratification, of course, is just the ability to put something off in order to get something better, right, just putting something off in order to get something better. Uh, like for instance, you know, um, you might put off having a burger for lunch in order to eat a salad, and the trade-off you're making is instead of eating something that tastes good, you get to live into your 70s, and uh, at least that's the way I understand it. It's not something that I have done. but. That's the way that I understand that trade-off basically working. So delayed gratification um, is putting off something good in order to gain something better. Um, so an example of that is the, uh, the, the Stanford uh, marshmallow experiment. That might be something you've heard of. So 1972, Stanford did this research. Where they took 32 kids age of 3 to 5 and promised them, or put a marshmallow in front of them, and they, the, the researcher would leave and say, I'm going to come back in about 15 minutes. If the marshmallow is still there, you can pick, you can have a second marshmallow or you can get a pretzel stick, whichever one you prefer. And I just want to say, by the way, um, these kids are ages three to five. My daughter is about to be three and she would definitely fail this. There's no chance. She, would, she wouldn't even eat the marshmallow. It would just be like, or at least she wouldn't be able to see her. It would just be absorbed into her body instantly as soon as it was, like, it was put down. But anyway... Some of these kids did do that. They, they waited and they got their reward, and then some of them did not, right? The researchers thought that this was due, you know, just to inerrant like, willpower in the kid, and what's kind of come since then is they've done more experiments, um, and there's, it's kind of, it's like it's a little more complex than that. So for instance, one, one experiment took kids in Japan and Colorado, um, and, tested them two different ways. So they, had, uh, they, could, they could do the delayed gratification experience with a gift and one with food, right? So this was just food. They did it with, uh, with gifts as well. The kids in Japan were way more likely to wait for food, but way less likely to wait for a gift. The opposite was true in Colorado. The kids were way more likely to wait for a gift than food. The thinking was it's, it's a result of different, like, social expectations, right? The kids in Japan are used to waiting for food but not gifts and then vice versa in America. Jesus, I believe, knows our, so to speak, social condition, He knows the state of this world and where we are drawn towards, which is to put our hearts, to put our treasure in this earth. And so he gives us this warning and points us to something better, which is the treasure of heaven. So what is the treasure of heaven like? Well, it's obviously he's contrasting it, um, and whereas the treasure of this earth is insecure, the treasure of heaven is secure. It cannot be taken, it cannot, uh, cannot be destroyed, it cannot uh, be corrupted in any way. The, tr- the treasure of heaven that Jesus describes and, and having and knowing God is much better because it is more secure. It's not subject to the, the, the um, destruction that we see in the world. Also, it is secure, but it also satisfies, right? So materialism, it has to acquire to be satisfied, right? So um, we, if we follow the way of the world, we're not going to be satisfied by simply having something, but in having more of something, in gaining, in in getting more. Whereas the, the way of the kingdom is satisfied in having, specifically having God. For instance, take Psalm uh, 1611. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In that verse, David describes what true satisfaction looks like. It is found in the Lord, who at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The, the way of the kingdom, the treasure of heaven, it is secure and it satisfies. So, here's what we need to come away with in this first concern of Jesus. Investing in the treasures of this world is foolish, And the truth is that putting our hearts into the wrong thing can have devastating consequences. So the question for us is, how do we check our hearts? How do we know what we're putting our treasure in? Well, I think we can ask ourselves a couple of questions. First, how do you view your wealth? And second, how do you use your wealth, right? A couple of questions that we can ask. First, how do we view our wealth, right? So the money that we have... How do we, do we look at it? Um, so we can ask questions like this. What role does wealth, does the things that we have in our life, what role does it serve in your life? Is it an end in itself, right? Like, I, I just want things, I want money. Is it a statement about your worth as a person? Do you feel like a, a, a stronger, better, or more worthy person for having things? Is it a tool for something else? Are you, are you wanting to use your wealth for something else? And if it is, what are you planning to use it for? Do you view your wealth as a tool, something to use? And if you are, what are you planning to use it for? Second question you can ask is, like, what things in your life capture your imagination? If there's, if there's anything you think, if I had that, I would finally be happy. What is it, Right? Is there anything you feel quite certain that if given the opportunity to get it through sin, you would do it? Is there anything like that in your life? What captures your imagination? We can ask how we view wealth. We can also ask how we use wealth, right? So, in uh, you know, talking about here in, in money versus some of the other things we've talked about so far, uh, like, like prayer, prayer. Um, uh, a giving, well, not, not as much giving, but prayer, um, lust, anger, those kind of examples. Benefit here is there is actually numbers, right? The usefulness of the numbers, we could talk about that. But we are actually able to look at the money that we're using, right? It's There's math involved. It's very specific and concrete. Um, if you have not taken time to just simply look at where your money goes, I would encourage you to do so. Just take a bit, look, you know, do a budget. There's, there's, you know, of course financial benefits to budgets, but do a budget so you can see how am I using my money, right? Where is it going? Is it, and through that, I believe what you might uncover is where are my priorities, right? Because as Jesus says, where our treasure is, our heart will be also. So, those questions like that um, are uncomfortable for me to uh, bring up and ask uh, because uh, I don't believe like, right, like I have a right to know all of uh, your financial uh, situation, but I am concerned with your heart. The way that money plays a role in the formation of your heart, just as Jesus is here. So Jesus uh, doesn't just point out that investing in this world is foolish, but he also points out a second concern, is that our hearts follow what we treasure. Our hearts follow what we treasure. So we can kind of break this down into three statements. Three statements. What we treasure is what we love. What we love is what we obey. And what we love becomes our master. Let's begin with the first point there. Jesus makes this point in verse 21, where he, uh, basically saying that what we treasure is what we love. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We've kind of already been hitting at this a bit, but what we need to point out just really clearly is that we do not merely treasure things, but we are drawn towards them, right? We don't, we're not just a, uh, someone who does something, you know, with this item out here, but as we spend time with it, as we think about it, as we treasure it, we're drawn towards it, so we go more in the direction of materialism. We don't stay static, but we move towards it. And because of that, where our treasure is, our heart will be too. We don't just have and, and, and become obsessed with something, but our hearts, our, our love is drawn towards that as well. Jesus' point is that when we pour our time into money and the things of this world and obsessive rate, we begin to love those things. So when we lay up treasures on earth, we risk um, those treasures becoming an idol that holds our heart. So, Jesus says, What we treasure is what we love. But we also see that what we love, right, our treasure that we love, is what we obey. He says that in verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, we got a metaphor. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So I'm not going to lie. That is definitely, to me, the most complicated part of this whole passage. But basically, we've got a metaphor going on where Jesus is comparing our eyes to a lamp. Right? So if a lamp is functioning properly, the house is illuminated, right? There's light in the house. If the lamp is malfunctioning, there will be darkness. And Jesus is comparing that to our eye. Um, it's unclear whether people in the, the nearest this time saw um, eyes as emitting light or receiving light. Uh, but the, the point basically is that, uh, that if your eye is malfunctioning, right? Your body is going to be malfunctioning. And so we've got the metaphor there, the lamp and the eye, and actually we've kind of got another metaphor going on because the eye and the body functioning together is kind of like um, our our heart being drawn towards something affecting the things that we do, right? We don't just see and love something, but it kind of takes over us, right? We obey the things that we love, So we're we're not simply drawn towards things. The things that we love have sway over us. They determine the actions that we do. Let me give an example of this. SEC football fans. Um, So SEC football fans will pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars to watch a single game, right? Now forget season tickets, forget going multiple times hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a you know family of four or five to go watch a single game. Um, they will complain about people and things that they have never met before, right? Like refs, players, coaches, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they will apparently throw mustard bottles on the field when things go awry. Like being a parent—oh, uh, this is another one I wrote down. This is, this is fun. I did not know this, but people will—I I can't believe this— skip their friends' weddings to not just go to games, but like just to watch them on TV. So um, the point is the things that we love dictate our actions, right? They have sway over us. Jesus is saying we cannot be drawn to the things of this world and our actions to, uh, to, to not be affected by that. Just as the, the I instructs the body, our heart destructs our actions. The takeaway is, we can't simply lay up treasures on this earth and remain unaffected. Those treasures will consume us. You have to understand, you are not in control. You can't just spend all of your heart's energy on the things of this world and not be affected by it. You can't. You won't come out the same. So, what we love becomes what we obey. Last, what we love becomes our master, which Jesus points out in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus' conclusion to this whole thing is basically this. Loving and obeying wealth, the things of this world, treasures of this world, it doesn't just lead us in a different direction. It takes us to a different place. It doesn't just take us in a different direction, but all the way to a different destination. Truth is that we cannot serve two masters. The thing that we love will eventually become our master. R.T. France, he suggested in this, you know, his commentary on this passage, we could feasibly have two employers, right? Um, some of you might, that might be your situation, or you've might been in that situation before, right? You can make that work. But you cannot have two masters. Why is that? Well, an employer, they you know, kind of have claim to your time, but a master has claim to your whole person, everything you are, not just the time that you spend. The truth is that the more we devote our heart to the things of this world, the more it will become our master. Our master. And we cannot have two masters. When we pour everything into materialism, we'll be drawn far from God. Our, our resources will be uh, consumed by uh, spending and consumerism. Our, our time will be consumed by making money. Uh, our minds will be constantly distracted for, by planning what we're going to do with our things when we get them. Our hearts will be consumed with love for something other than the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We cannot have two masters. So that's the second of Jesus' concerns here in giving this warning. Jesus gives this warning about uh, about, uh, wealth and and about money and, and all this, again, because he's trying to get at our hearts. God is not so much concerned with our money as with our hearts. That's what he's getting at driving towards our hearts. So the question we have to ask as we begin wrapping this up, how can we free our hearts from materialism, from the the way of the world and, and lead them on the way of the kingdom? How can we be free from materialism and lead them, most importantly, towards Christ? Well, I would give two suggestions. The first is the spiritual practice of giving, the spiritual practice of giving. So we try to take time each week here in our service to have a time of giving. You may have noticed um, if you were here with us pre-COVID versus now, we stopped having, you know, a physical, you know, pass the plate. Well, we never passed the plate. We had, you know, the plates up here for you to bring. We stopped doing that, but we did not stop our time of giving. And the question is why? Why did we choose to do that? Basically, we want to be reminded of the importance and the place of giving as a spiritual practice in our lives. Giving, we often think, is just a numerical action, right? A transfer of our bank account to the churches or, you know, for whatever other place we might be giving our money to. But giving is a spiritual action. And that's why we read 2 Corinthians 9, 7, and 8 each week, because it reminds us of the, the, the you know, role and power of giving. All right? so 2 Corinthians 9, 7, and 8, this will sound familiar to you. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And don't, don't, start, don't start coming in with me here, but God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This passage reminds us of a couple things. First, uh, in giving, we have to grapple with the idea that there are better uses, times for our money, than just our own personal use, right? So in our giving, we are, we are giving cheerfully, not under compulsion, because we know in our hearts that there is something better for us than to keep that money, right? Second, we're reminded from this passage that in giving, we recognize our dependence on God, Verse 8 says that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We give recognizing that we have because of God recognizes our dependence on him. And so giving is a spiritual action. So I, I want to do one thing that I don't often do, which is to bring up a point of application that I think is going to be somewhat controversial. But um, I, I want to just mention one thing. Um, there is this idea that kind of I, I've seen going around a couple times. I think it's a distortion of an actually good idea. But it's this idea of foregoing generosity now in order to be generous Later, right? Making a long-term practice of foregoing generosity at a young age so that you can be generous at an older age, right? Um, so the idea behind that, um, I think, this is why it's so new: is you know we have more reliable investments, that sort of thing, today, so we have more money to give later on uh, in our, our adult lives. Here's my concern with that, very specifically, is that foregoing the opportunity to give as a young person, Um, I can can say that right, as a young person myself, Um, it robs us of these spiritual benefits and of the the chance to to remember that there are better uses for our money and in recognizing dependence on God. And I I don't mean to say, I, I want to provide one important caveat. There is a way to, you know, save and invest for the future with the intention of being generous, that does not forego being generous now, right? So that is a healthy use of money. Um, But I I just wanted to point that out. If you have any questions about that, um, if you want to talk more about that, um, send Matthew an email. He'd be glad to uh, talk to you about that. So um, we see the spiritual practice of giving, but I want to point more importantly to Christ. My second, my second recommendation for freeing our hearts from materialism, to walking the path of the kingdom, is to give yourself to Christ, the good master. Christ brings forgiveness for our idolatry. He came to bring forgiveness for our idolatry. As we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, um, I'll be honest with you, my heart at times has felt. Beat up almost because of the, the shots that Jesus takes repeatedly to uh, at our hearts. The truth is that uh, recognizing and looking at this passage in Matthew six, um, I, that there there are times in my heart that I view money in an unhealthy way. There are times I've used money in an unhealthy way. Christ came to bring forgiveness for that. Truth is that we all struggle with this, and Christ has come to bring forgiveness for all of the ways that we've fallen short in our understanding and use of our money. And importantly, Christ brings lordship to bring us out of our idolatry. Christ didn't just come to just wipe our slate clean, but to bring us in a better way, in a better direction. And so Christ as the good master who will bring us out of this dependence on things and stuff and bring us into loving relationship with our Father. That's what he came to do, is to free us, forgive us, and lead us in the path of righteousness. So my call and prayer for us this morning is that we would not be dependent on the things of this world, but we would lean in in dependence on our Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for your provision, for your loving uh, you know, care of us in Christ. We pray that you would help us to become ever more dependent on you for the things of life and the things that you have done. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.